It's lastchanceark.com podcast. Seven messages to help you establish your relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, praise the Lord, everyone. Here we are, the last podcast in this series, the last episode on lastchanceark.com. In this last episode, which I've entitled Restoration, Devastation, and Peace, I'd like to address some issues that will help the church to thrive during the critical times that are coming. First, let's begin with restoration. First, let me say about restoration that the plan of salvation, Acts 2.38, has been restored to the church. However, there are a couple of items that remain for our understanding. These two items that I want to talk about today are the revelation of what the Son of God is, Son of God means, and second is the concept of holiness and what that means for the church world. In the early church years around Constantinople, when Constantine came into the church, great confusion came into the church about the idea of the Son of God. Is he a begotten son, or is he an eternal son? Uh, and if he is a son, was Adam the Son of God? And of course, Scripture tells us that Adam is a son of God, the first son of God. However, the difference between Adam and Jesus Christ is that Adam was manufactured. In Matthew 22, 41-45, Jesus asked this important question of the Pharisees, Messiah, whose son is he? And of course, Jesus points to Psalm 110, 1-4, that the Messiah, the son, okay, would be both human and divine. That's the first part of the revelation, but that's that's not the only important aspect of the Son of God. Next, we have to go to the idea of the Romans 10, 9-13 confession. And this is where people fall off the rails in the modern church. They think that the confession is a verbal repetition of the phrase, Jesus is Lord. But in Romans 10, 9-13, the Bible instructs us, Paul instructs us, to believe in our heart, confess with our mouth, and then call on the name to be saved. When did this actually occur? We have to only go to Acts 8.37, which has been removed by the Wheaton Bible College scholar out of the NIV, the NLT, the ESV, and modern translations, but yet it remains in the NASB and in the King James Version and the New King James Version. Acts 8.37 is legitimate. It was quoted by Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon, France, in the 2nd century or 3rd century or so, somewhere in there. But the bottom line is, is that when the eunuch, before he was baptized, he confessed and believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you will look at this confession, you'll find it in uh, Matthew 16, 16 through 18, Peter's great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed that unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. You'll see that uh, Mary and Martha confessed this when in the resurrection of Lazarus. Peter, of course, confessed it again. We see that Nathaniel confessed it when Jesus said he saw him under the tree, you are the King of Israel, the Son of God. But what does that mean, the Son of God, the King of Israel? 
Messiah simply means the one that was expected to restore the throne of David to be king over Israel. But yet Jesus preached the kingdom of God first before the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of God, as we know, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit experience, Acts 10.46, the Bible evidence of the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, is the kingdom of God that comes. It came on the day of Pentecost, which began the, uh, the true chapter of the church, the kingdom of God. And so we see that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God first before the kingdom of Israel. So we have the meaning of Messiah, but second, the Son of God. Does being the Son of God make Jesus divine? If you said yes, then you must admit that Adam, being the first Son of God, is divine, which he certainly is not. How do we know this? Because Adam was manufactured, he was given all 46 chromosomes by God in his flesh, and then God breathed into his nostrils, and Adam became a living soul. But in the case of Jesus, Jesus was begotten, and that word begotten means sired. Now you could think of it as a sexual process, but the Bible says that the Holy Spirit overshadowed, adumbrated Mary, and she was willing to bring the Messiah, the Son of God, into the world. And so the idea of the Son of God does not mean divinity at all. It simply means the flesh of God, the humanity of God. Jesus is not a uh, divine person because he's the Son of God. Therefore, Adam would be our first God. So we see that the Son of God simply means that he is the offspring, the begotten. And of course, this was denied in Constantinople when the church became corrupted. They denied that Jesus was begotten. They wanted to make him, through philosophy, an eternal son, a second person, which he never was. We all have to read Psalm 110, 1 through 4, that the Son of God is both divine and human. So what makes Jesus divine? Certainly not being the Son of God. What makes Jesus divine is that the Word was made into that flesh. We know that Colossians 2, 8, and 9 tell us that Jesus has the fullness of divinity in him. That doesn't mean a partial word. He has the full Godhead inside of him. That makes him both Father and Son. 1 John 2:22 says, If you deny that Jesus is Father and Son, you are Antichrist. And we see many, many people today that deny that Jesus is Father. But we also see people that are afraid to say that Jesus is Son, human. You know, what's the great mystery of godliness is that God was manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, and of course the word God always means Father in the New Testament. The Father was manifest in flesh. Jesus said in John 14.9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father's flesh can only be seen in the face of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God hid his face from Israel. The old covenant had a veil over it. It veiled the eyes of Israel to see the Lord's true identity in his humanity. And so we always see two wings of an angel hiding the face of God. But when Jesus arrived, we see the face of God in flesh, his humanity. God desired to fellowship with his creation, human beings. And so the idea of the Son of God is not that he is some sort of divine flesh. That is a mistake, and it's a misunderstanding of DNA. 
For example, Jesus got 23 chromosomes from his mother, Mary. He got 23 chromosomes from his father, the Divine Father. That makes 46, the same number of chromosomes as Adam, the difference being Jesus was sired. He was begotten. He is not an eternal son. He began in approximately 0 AD, if there was such a year, <laughs> uh, or 1 AD, if you want to look at it that way. His, his April 3rd, 33 AD is considered his crucifixion date, but we see that his flesh okay, began, had a beginning, and he became the Son of God, God manifest in flesh. And so the idea of the Son of God is that he's human in every way. He gives up his divine rights, he cries in the back of a boat, he hungers, he thirsts, he becomes afraid in the garden, he's tempted to run from the cross, and yet he's strengthened by an angel, and he goes to the cross believing in the resurrection. And so the idea is to restore the idea of the Son of God to the church. Now this confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, was always performed by the Jewish church, the Hebrew church, before water baptism. You don't believe me? Check out Philip, what he said to the eunuch. I'll baptize you if you believe. He says, I believe, Philip said, or the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this confession is what Romans 10, 9 through 13 is all about. Going a little bit further, the idea of sin nature, which is never found among Judaism, this idea came from Augustine, who was a Manichaeus before he became a Christian. A Manichaeus believed in the duality of good and evil, that inside each man is evil and good. This doctrine seeped into the church and became the sin nature doctrine. It eventually manifested in the divine flesh doctrine, a denial that Jesus' mother okay, could have contributed any DNA to Jesus because she had a sinful nature. And the idea of sin nature has absolutely nothing to do with the flesh of either humanity or Jesus Christ. We are all a blank slate. We choose who we're going to serve. Now, just to say this one last thing. If you believe in sin nature, you'll find that many paraphrases, NLT, NIV, that the uh, doctrine of Augustine became so embedded in the church that they began to translate law of sin with sin nature. And there's no such thing. The law of sin simply is a contamination of our thinking, the knowledge of good and evil. That's all it is. But we choose whether we're going to sin or not, and by our choice condemn ourselves to eternal death and of course contaminates our bodies and so our bodies die which was out of the design concept of God so law of sin versus sin nature get to your Greek see that uh, this was never a doctrine found in Judaism and so uh, we're trying to restore the church here to its purity uh, the next thing I want to talk about is holiness and specifically Wesleyan holiness John Wesley, uh, who formed the Holiness Club at, I believe, Oxford University in the 18th century with his brother, you know, he would fast and give his money to the poor, and, and of course he began to uh, read writings of people that were involved in asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that you can somehow become more holy through your outward adornment, that your, uh, your lifestyle, something uh, like that. And part of it is scriptural, but a lot of it is absolutely uh, what I call scriptural junk. It's junk DNA. 
John Wesley, in fact, uh, when he eventually got married, he sort of divorced his wife and didn't even attend her funeral. They were estranged because he spent more time with women that worshipped his ministry as opposed to his wife. And it was a sad chapter in his life. He, he just didn't have a hand on holiness. When Wesley went to uh, America, uh, Savannah, Georgia specifically, and uh, under General Oglethorpe, he tried to establish uh, outward holiness in his colony. Well, the good thing he did is he, he kept slavery from being established in that colony. However, he wanted to mandate that everybody would wear a uniform. And of course, eventually, he himself okay, was involved romantically with a woman who became married to the chief of police's son, and he couldn't let her go. And of course, they kicked him out of the colony on his ride back on the boat. Uh, he ended up at Aldersgate Street in London and of course met some uh, people and he said he felt his heart warmed. He didn't receive the Holy Ghost, but he eventually traveled to Hernhut, Germany, where the Moravians were, were headquartered, and those are the people that ministered to him. And uh, when he came back, he began to, uh, you know, modify his stance on holiness. Now, holiness is real simple. If you look at ancient Israel and the tabernacle plan, the closer that you got to God, the holier you became. And of course, the high priest was the holiest of all, and he began to dress extremely differently than everybody else. Both his breastplate, his robes, his mitre, all these things had to do with holiness, drawing close to God. And of course, there was always competition. Who would camp closest to the Holy of Holies? And of course, uh, the tribe of uh, Levi was on the eastern side, right outside the, the front gate of the uh, tabernacle. And holiness was about your proximity to God. Now, will worship, which is found in the New Testament, is simply trying to be holy through outward adornment, things of that nature. And that certainly is not holiness. Holiness is your heart proximity to God. God desired David because he was a man after God's own heart. And that means God's character. And so if you want to adopt holiness in the church, you must focus on the character of people. And the only way to improve our character is to acquire fruits of the Spirit. And the first fruit is love. And we can find that there are 12 fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians 5.22, in the book of Hebrews 13, etc. The three fruits that are typically missing are the fruit of praise, the fruit of truth, and the fruit of righteousness, which comes through correction. Holiness, or fruits of the Spirit, is not taught in the church. We focus too much on doctrine as opposed to character, telling the truth, uh, being honest, just weights and scales. We need to focus on what is just, what is right, what is godly, piety. So holiness is a piety concept. Probably the biggest aspect of holiness is our conversation. We are instructed to live peacefully and to pray for our leaders. How many people will pray for the uh, leader of the opposition party? How many people are involved in politics with hate speech? In the 1950s, in many of the, uh, many of the Pentecostal denominations, the Spirit instructed people to not watch television. And of course, many people think it's because of uh, the morality that began to descend uh, in from Hollywood and pollute our consciousness. 
but the, it seems that here in the end time, with the advent of the internet, YouTube, things of that nature, everybody is watching television, but yet on the internet. What was God after with these early Pentecostal people? What he was after was to keep us from becoming hateful. Hate is not Jesus Christ. Jesus never carried a political sign. He didn't carry a firearm out of insecurity about uh, what was going on in the world, the Romans. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid of that. What he did fear was walking in Jewry, and so he avoided walking in Jewry. They were after his life. That's common sense. But the bottom line is, is that hate comes from watching the cable news networks. And I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. If you want to pollute your mind and become a hater, just keep watching political news. It's not helpful. It's not godly. It's not kingdom focused. So holiness has more to do with our conversation. The Bible calls speaking in tongues our most holy faith. Why did God choose tongues? Because the tongue is an unruly member. When we criticize leaders, we are violating the scripture because the Bible tells us to pray for our leaders. And it's talking about civil leaders, not just spiritual leaders. We need to pray for anybody who's in authority so that we can live a quiet and peaceful life. So when I'm talking about holiness, I'm talking about drawing close to God and understanding the character of God. The best way to understand the character of God is to read the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, and also the Beatitudes. And uh, go right into the fruits of the Spirit. If we can help believers acquire fruits of the Spirit, we can get rid of the vegetables of the Spirit, the rutabagas, the turnips that pollute the soul, hate speech, carrying guns, thinking that somehow that we are to be militants, demanding our rights as opposed to submitting to each other and to all authority. Now, I'm not talking about submitting to the point of doing something evil. God instructs us not to do that. But we are to pray for our leaders that we can live a quiet and peaceful life. The next segment I want to talk about is the idea of devastation. An elderly Pentecostal man at age 87, back in 2019, gave a most unique prophecy. I'd like to replay that prophecy for you so that you can hear it with your own ears and then talk about devastation. My son, I will send a devastation on the United States, the like of which has never been experienced. The devastation will come with destruction multiplied times over and the people will tremble. I will do this to bring the nation to its knees. Even the kings of the earth shall be clothed in fear. The entire population of the United States will then know the paths of treachery their leaders have traveled to destroy the faith of so many. My people, who are called by my name, will be tried severely, but my purpose will be to show myself to be their God even before I come to gather them to me. But the end is not yet. This will take place just prior to my return, and I will use this devastation to cause many spiritual prodigals who have turned away from me to return and reconsecrate their lives to me, and many who have left the love of righteousness and the gospel, to realign their principles. Also, I will bring multitudes to know me because at that time there will be a revelation that all men everywhere will know that I am the only Lord God. This prophecy was given by a South American missionary who had retired and had never given anything like it before in his entire life. Um, very sincere man. If you'd like to know his name, send me an email and I'll uh, be happy to tell you who it is. 
he used the word devastation, destruction. So let's talk about what items, what idols in the United States are going to come down. First, I think the first idol that's going to come down is prosperity. How's this going to happen? Well, we see that socialism is taking hold in the United States. When socialism takes hold, people in government spend money that's never taxed. Somebody else always has to pay. Not only does this stymie an economy, but what it does is it creates inflation. And once inflation takes hold, a currency begins to devalue. If the U.S. dollar begins to devalue from all these trillions that are being invented out of thin air by the Federal Reserve for COVID payments and for getting our economy jump-started like they did during the 1930s and 40s and, of course, during the Obama years and, and early Trump years, inflation is when your dollars are worthless. Now, this will cause heartache for a lot of people who are invested in 401ks, who are invested in retirement plans, who have pensions, and uh, this is the kind of thing that will begin to bring America to its praying knees. Covetousness always precedes the idolatry of other kinds of sins. Specifically, you can't have a Hollywood and a Las Vegas without a Wall Street. And right now we see that most of the people that are that are elected, that are influenced, that are influencers in our culture, are like movie stars financed by Wall Street billionaires. And uh, it's not exactly the common people of Harry Truman's day who uh, voted for him. And so we see that uh, politically we are in trouble, but we see more than that financially we're going to be in trouble. Now, what about destruction? We talked about devastation of people's lifestyles, but what about destruction? Well, we also see that uh, there's a tremendous uh, move to get us involved in the Middle East. So when you look at who's producing oil, Saudi Arabia is the only country that has what they call uh, flat, uh, flat oil reserves. In other words, they can pump up oil production to f 5 million uh, barrels a day additional in short order. The United States can't do that with oil shell fracking. We can't do that. It takes investments, longer lead time. If you lose the Persian Gulf, if there's a war between Iran and the Saudi Arabia Confederation, Israel, if there is a war between these nations, you'll see the price of oil skyrocket. It'll be very difficult for economies to get going. Yep, electric cars are a good answer. Uh, if they were in fact uh, plentiful and not so expensive, and if uh, North Americans had access to lithium-ion batteries, which the Chinese control that market as well. So here we have a predicament, both financial devastation and possibly a, a collapse because of war. Uh, the plague itself has shown that fascism is something that you can dictate to people in the United States. Never, never before have we seen the ability of people to have to uh, show a testing card or to show a vaccine card to get into a shop uh, to buy and sell. So my thought is that COVID testing, COVID vaccination requires a DNA identity. Once that identity is in the CDC cloud, it's in the WHO cloud, you now are identified. Once you're identified, um, you can now be linked to currency. And cryptocurrency is coming. It may end up being the only stable commodity in the financial markets.
Yes, things like Bitcoin. So gold and Bitcoin is very possible. These would be the mediums of exchange to defeat inflation, but it's not clear on what's going to happen. It's not clear what's going to emerge. And as we've seen, things can emerge pretty fast. The tech giants want to require Americans to identify, certify, be uh, in the group uh, of compliance. And uh, we see that uh, censorship is now beginning to emerge and that uh, we never thought these things would happen in a culture that had been inoculated by the book 1984. Even though devastation and destruction brings people to repentance, we will see an influx of prodigals who have left the church for various offenses. They will come back and they will make sure that they have their relationship with God completely straight before the Lord returns. And this is what God wants. But he also wants an emergence of the Acts 238 gospel, the emergence of Jesus' name, the Son of God identity. He wants that to emerge throughout the world. And so we expect that there will be a worldwide last days gospel that will defeat the Babylon church that has preached a false gospel for so many centuries. Finally, in this last podcast episode, what I'd like to say is that if you have left the church for any reason and have not been reconciled to your brothers through communion, and you can't take communion at home by yourself, if you have not been reconciled, read Luke chapter 17, 1 through 5. It gives us the reconciliation process. Rehearse your offense with the leader or the person that has offended you. Get it off your chest. Maybe God will send you to a different church, or maybe he'll reconcile you to your old church. Either way, you must be part of the body of Christ, or your branch will be broken off. And that's the main thing. We don't want your branch broken off and tossed into the fire. So I encourage, if you've been out of church for a while and you hear this podcast, I pray that you would find a way to get back into the body of Christ, fellowship, live a quiet and peaceful life, control your tongue if you can, okay? And uh, try to be the Christian that Jesus desires. Finally, in this episode, I would like to encourage everyone to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now you might in your thinking think, old Jerusalem in Israel, and you're right, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem in that old city. However, the new Jerusalem needs peace. It needs the peace of the Holy Ghost and the peace that comes from the fruits of the Spirit, living a godly, pious life. If we would do that, if we would pray for each other to become fruitful, to become peaceful, to be a lover of men and God, if we would, if we would preach that, if we would teach that, and pray for each other to become peaceful. What we don't want to do is we don't want to become political activists. Revelation 13.10 instructs us that if we're going to live by the sword, we will die by the sword. If we lead into captivity, we'll be taken into captivity. This is a riddle. And it says that we need to have faith and patience, okay, in the end time. Faith says, I believe in the word of God in spite of the circumstances I see in the news broadcast or in the world or across the street or people marching down my community's highways. But patience means to wait on God. He will deliver us. When things become persecution madness, when they occur, 
we can trust that God will provide the way of escape. Praise God. Thank you for listening. Hope to hear from you. Thanks for listening to LastChanceArc.com, a seven-message podcast series to help you establish your relationship with Jesus Christ.